Winnie Lee, two over on my left, is a writer, activist, rape survivor, and PhD researcher at the London School of Economics. In the media and communications department, she's exploring the uses of social media by rape survivors to share their experiences online. Her award-winning debut novel, Dark Chapter, <laughs> was published this year, and it's a fictional exploration of her own assault, but told equally from the victim and perpetrator's perspectives. She is also co-founder of the Clear Lines Festival, the UK's first ever festival dedicated to addressing sexual assault and consent through the arts and discussion. Two additional notes. Um, Winnie just found out earlier today that um, she is the winner. The book, Dark Chapter, is the winner of the Guardian's Not the Booker Prize. So please join me in giving... Some of Winnie's books will be on sale afterwards, so please do come and uh, purchase one if you would like. <laughs> um, next is beside Winnie, uh, to the left of Winnie, is Dr. Tiffany Page. Tiffany is a lecturer in social inequalities in the Department of Sociology at the University of Cambridge. Her research interests include investigating conceptions of vulnerability, endurance, and exhaustion. Tiffany is the co-founder of the 1752 group, uh, research and lobby organization addressing staff-to-student sexual misconduct in higher education. And she writes about related issues of gender inequality and power within higher education in the UK. Um, two over to my left. Sorry, I've been trying to count it out and it's not working. Uh, you'll, just, you'll just know who's who. <laughs> professor Alison Phipps. Alison is Professor of Gender Studies at the University of Sussex. Alison has engaged in extensive impact and engagement work around the issue of sexual harassment and violence against students. Since 2013, Alison has been working closely with the NUS as part of the National Strategy Team for Tackling Lad Culture in Higher Education. Alison is also on the advisory board of the 1752 group, the UK's first lobby group on sexual misconduct towards students by staff, and she gave evidence to the 2015-16 Universities UK Task Force on Violence Against Women, Harassment and Hate Crime, and continues to advise UUK on this issue. Finally, we have Fiona Way. Fiona Way is the senior policy lead in inclusion, equality, and diversity at the university's UK and works on a range of proje projects connected with promoting inclusion, equality, and diversity for both higher education students and staff. Her current work includes the university's UK task force to examine violence against women, harassment, and hate crime affecting university students. And the task force has provided guidance to universities on preventing and responding to incidents of violence and sexual harassment against women, hate crimes, and other forms of harassment. Really amazing panel, I think you'll find just by that very brief um, description of them. Uh, tonight's uh, event is going to go as follows. Um, the speakers are going to um, talk for about five minutes each, and then I'll pose uh, a couple of questions to them uh, for a kind of intra-panel discussion, and then we'll open it up to the audience for um, questions from you. Okay? <laughs> Good. Okay, so I'm going to start with um, Dr. Jennifer Chironi. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, 
I'm from um, Solace Women's Aid. Um, it's very simple um, what we do, but very complex work. Um, for the last um, over 40 years, uh, we have been working with survivors of sexual and domestic violence and abuse um, in London, in North London. Um, relevant to today's discussion, we have specialist services. Um, you may be familiar with um, our specialist service um, supporting survivors of um, sexual assault and violence, which is North London Rape Crisis. As you can imagine, um, we're busy. Uh, last year, we worked with, um, as an organisation, 11,000 unique um, survivors of domestic and sexual assault and violence. Within our specialist service at North London Rape Crisis, we worked with around 450 counselling clients. Um, in terms of counselling, um, which is available for survivors of sexual assault and violence, um, obviously for those undergoing um, um, the criminal justice system, um, where a report has been made and a perpetrator has been charged with an offence. The type of counselling that we can provide is, is strictly regulated by BACP and um, the CPS rules. Um, so we can provide um, pre-trial therapy, which is focused on stabilisation. Um, after trial, we can extend that offer to actually talking about what has happened to that survivor and we'll extend that into um, some, some further trauma-focused, person-centred therapy um, for that survivor. So that's our counselling offer. Um, but what we do know is that um, survivors of domestic and sexual assault and violence don't just have needs around the offending which has um, happened to them. Um, the people that we work with, the women we work with and children have multiple needs um, which need, they need support around to help them get them back on their feet and to progress them into long-term recovery from their experiences. That's where our team of ISVAs, Independent Sexual Violence Advisors, work with the survivor to address those needs. Um, whether that's happened uh, yesterday, um, a week ago, or in what we find in many, many cases 30 years ago, um, we'll work with survivors at whatever point of their journey um, towards recovery that they're at. And our ISVAs work provide really holistic um, support to um, survivors working on things not only support through the criminal justice system um, but in the family courts um, in terms of um, criminal injuries compensation housing um, needs around um, offending um, substance uh, misuse um, all types of needs um, to get that survivor back on the road to recovery um, it won't surprise you that um, within our wider um, domestic abuse services that we also receive many, many disclosures um, of, um, of sexual assaults and violence as well. 
Um, so it's not just um, the special work within specialist agencies, but also the um, excellent work which um, our really um, dedicated team provides some really creative and innovative therapies um, and support to help people uh, recover from what they've experienced. Um, so it's it's really simple in, in theory what we do, but obviously very complex um, and sensitive work that, that we're doing with survivors. Okay, and now to Dr. Alison Fitz. Okay, thank you very much um, for inviting me. Um, Yes, as Marcia said, I'm Professor of Gender Studies at Sussex and I've been working on issues around sexual harassment and violence in education, higher education, for about 12 years now. Um, so I've only got five minutes, um, so I'll just give you a really quick tour of some of the research and initiatives I've been involved in, which are also ongoing. And just t today as well, I'd like to say, me too. Some of you in the audience will know what that means. Um, so sexual violence in UK universities wasn't really on the agenda until 2010. Um, and that was the year that the NUS report Hidden Marks was released, which was a survey of over 2,000 women students. And it found that one in seven of them had experienced a serious physical or sexual assault during their studies and around... 68% had experienced sexual harassment and I was a consultant to NUS on this survey and after that was when they commissioned me um, with Isabel Young to investigate lad culture and its links to sexual violence. So our study recruited around 40 women students from universities across Britain. We did interviews and focus groups, and we found that some behaviours which were being characterised as laddish actually constituted sexual harassment. Um, we found that sports clubs and um, student nightlife tended to be hotspots for this type of activity, and we argued that lad culture could be conducive to more extreme forms of sexual violence. And our report, which was called That's What She Said, was released on International Women's Day 2013. And after this, NUS developed a huge range of initiatives, including the iHeart Consent Programme. They did an audit of student union and institutional policies. Um, more recently, they developed an, in, an initiative called Stand By Me, which was focused on support services. And until quite recently, it has to be said that most of the activity around sexual harassment and violence at UK universities has been student-led. Um, with the occasional involvement from faculty. So institutions themselves have been very slow to take action. And I guess that's where my research has mainly been focused. I've thought quite a lot about how institutional inaction on these issues is shaped by the cultures of universities and of higher education. So I've been primarily interested in the role of marketisation in higher education, and I've theorised how market rationalities situate issues of sexual harassment and violence within reckonings in which the institutional impact of disclosure is projected and totted up. And this produces what I call institutional airbrushing in which um, an emphasis on the appearance of the university takes precedence over staff and student welfare. Mm. So for something to be marketable, it must be unblemished. All flaws need to be airbrushed out. And institutional airbrushing takes two main forms, I think. Either issues are minimised, denied or concealed and settled quietly. Or when it's not possible to do that, the perpetrator themselves is airbrushed from the institution and it almost appears as if they were never there. 
and ultimately the impact of disclosures on the future value of the institution is more troubling than the issues that they reveal. So um, when I was asked in 2015 to come and deal with some naughty boys on the rugby team at Imperial College, I was quite keen to move the conversation towards the institution's culture. And the resulting project from that was conducted with Liz McDonnell, and it was a year-long case study which focused on the relationship between institutional culture and intersecting inequalities. Um, And I can say more about that in the questions if people want to know. Um, We're now implementing the same methodology at Sussex, so we call ourselves now the Changing University Cultures Collective, and we use multiple methods to gather views from staff and students, and then we facilitate a process of action inquiry grounded in these data. Um, Action inquiry is an organisational development technique in which individuals and groups engage in cycles of discussion, action and reflection focused on particular topics and we use this process to help universities think about their values and the kinds of environments that they want to create Um, and I personally think that these types of discussions about values are urgent now they're urgent in marketized higher education and they're urgent in a context in which the alt-right the so-called alt-right otherwise known as the far right is targeting universities as sites of progressive work So the idea of left-wing bias in academia is gaining traction. I don't know whether any of you have heard of the the, um, spiked free speech university rankings, but in those rankings, having a sexual harassment policy or having a policy focused on lad culture can get your institution a red rating as being anti-free speech. And what I was really struck by this year is that those rankings were reported largely uncritically in the liberal media as well as the more conservative media, as if they were just another league table. Um, And that is a shift. So in the last couple of years, a number of institutional initiatives have emerged around sexual harassment and violence, including at LSE. Um, And this is largely due to the University's UK task force, um, which I'm sure Fiona will talk about a little bit more, which recommended last year that all universities take action. Um, And there's been catalyst funding available from HEFKE, which has very much facilitated universities to take action on these issues. But I do worry that if we don't tackle cultures and values, our work will be susceptible to that broader political context and shifts in public opinion. So in other words, we have to be committed to this for its own sake. And that's where I'll leave it. Thank you very much, Alison. Okay, we're going to go around and then back. (laughs) So Tiffany, please. Great. Thank you very much. Um, Really good to be here. So my name's Tiffany Page. I'm the co-founder of the 1752 Group, which is a research and lobby group um, tasked with eliminating staff-to-student sexual misconduct in education, and I'm also currently a lecturer in the Department of Sociology at the University of Cambridge. Um, So the 1752 group was formed in 2016 out of the actions, and it's important as Alison says, this is the actions of students, um, out of the actions of a group of PhD students at Goldsmiths that alerted the university in 2012 to cases of staff sexual misconduct. And that's a term that we use to encompass a range of behaviours including sexual harassment, sexual coercion, bullying, grooming and sexual assault. And that took four years of making complaints while we were doing our PhDs and of activism on our part along with staff. So this is very much involving Professor Sarah Ahmed um, 
and the actions of many students that came before us, and it's important to recognise these histories, that tried to speak out for senior management to begin to implement institutional-wide change. So £1,752 was the amount of money we were given by Goldsmiths to hold the first ever conference on sexual harassment um, by staff in higher education, and that was in December 2015, and that's where we met Alison. Um, and this was also a student-driven event. Again, this was having to be taken by students and not by the institution. So importantly, at the time we were informed um, that no new money would be set aside and that the university would not promise any further money in the future. We named ourselves after this amount as a reminder of that and that it's a serious issue, that it's going to cost a lot more than £1,752 and to put on one event to address this issue. So we formed 1752 Group after this conference because we realised that this wasn't about one institution. Staff sexual misconduct is a national issue that impacts students of all gender identities. And it was not being discussed and it was not being addressed. And so we've been greatly helped by The Guardian's coverage and ongoing commitment to making universities accountable to misconduct of staff. So the question of this discussion in this panel, but also of this room, is... How can reports of sexual harassment and sexual violence change the culture? But I think a question that hangs in the air for some of us working with cases of sexual violence is, but what happens after a student reports? So we know that students have always reported on sexual misconduct in its many forms, to friends, to survivor support organisations, to tutors, to staff, to supervisors, to heads of departments. We know that students have actively resisted in so many ways, including changing courses, changing supervisors and universities um, to avoid that person and to engage in forms of activism from writing on toilet doors to library books to blogging to tweeting. But we also know that even when disciplinary procedures are initiated and the staff member remains in their post... We know that when a complaint is upheld and it's moved to become a disciplinary procedure, and that's something we could talk about, through HR, students are often not informed of the outcome. So imagine being told disciplinary action has taken place, but you can't be told what that was, and then seeing that staff member remain on campus, which makes it impossible for you to continue your studies. So therefore, it's important to recognise that it's incredibly difficult to get rid of staff members even when the investigation finds them guilty, and even when criminal charges are brought. The best outcome for an institution is often that the staff member resigns, and then they're free to be hired by another institution. Confidentiality agreements are commonly used. Students may or may not receive some sort of financial settlement if the complaint is upheld, and the institution continues as it was, which is exactly what Alison's been talking about. So in light of this, I want to highlight the role of the institution as a perpetrator of harm in sexual misconduct. We need to acknowledge and address how institutions can fail survivors, students and staff who report, even when there are policies and procedures in place. And often these policies are a way of being seen to do something. So drawing upon the words of Professor Angela Davis recently, who's speaking out about fixing inequality within institutional structures that are entrenched in forms of deep-seated sexism and racism, she says, 
You can't just add something into the existing set of arrangements and assume that there is going to be any significant change. It continues the way it has always continued. And sometimes that adding something is a new policy. It is a new training initiative. So to illustrate this, I'll read a quote taken from the extensive reporting from The Guardian on staff sexual misconduct on the 5th of March this year. And this student is speaking anonymously. On paper, my university has proactive, supportive and committed policies and procedures to address sexual violence, sexual harassment and sexual discrimination. I now know that if it is the word of a student against a senior member of staff, that commitment quickly evaporates and they close ranks to protect their own. And we hear these stories again and again. So this is, in drawing upon a term developed in the US by Jennifer Freyd and Carly Smith, a form of institutional betrayal, and I think it's very directly related to institutional airbrushing, where the institution does further harm to the student in its, in its response to a report of sexual misconduct, which is further violating because of the trust and dependency that student has on their institution. So one of our goals was to create a national conversation on this issue, and we've seen this happen, and we've seen for student reports beginning to be taken seriously. Because it is staff, universities are going to need to address sexual misconduct in ways that are not always going to be met through the current focus on student-to-student forms of sexual harassment, sexual violence and hate crime. Every university needs initiatives and plans on this issue. And so to address and prevent this staff sexual misconduct, behaviours and mindsets also have to change. And as Alison has mentioned, she's doing amazing and necessary work on changing university cultures. So at the 1752 group, we're engaging across the academic system, and this work is highly collaborative. So just to end, I'll just touch on some of our activities. We're involved in several funded research projects, including with Alison um, at the University of Portsmouth and the University of York, in collaboration with other academics and sector experts. We're partnering with the National Union of Students to deliver the first ever survey on staff sexual misconduct later this year. So it's very much a follow-on from the Hidden Marks survey in 2010, specifically on staff-to-student sexual misconduct and the experiences of students. We're working with law firm McAllister Olivarius to draft policy, ensuring that universities are held accountable. We've worked with the Office of the Independent Adjudicator to involve them in this issue and develop guidance for students who can go to the OIA when universities are dragging their heels on complaints and investigations, which happens. We continue to work with Universities UK and with Fiona to develop guidelines and procedures and transparency for students. And, importantly, we continue to lobby for an enforceable professional code of conduct in academia, which we feel is vital. Thank you. Hi, um, so I'm going to start by saying me too as well, but um, you already knew that because Marsha introduced me as a rape survivor, and um, yeah, and I suppose it, it's, it's one of those things where if you're introduced as a rape survivor, and if, the, if you, you just Google my name and you'll find out I'm a rape survivor, um, there's something about that where it's like, does that, does that eclipse the rest of my identity, right? Because I do all these other things. I'm an author and I'm an activist and I had a life before um, my assault. Um, and I, you know, I'm doing academic um, research here, which is informed by my experience as a survivor. And I think in, in the nine and a half years since my assault, 
Um, one of the things that's really driven me is that we need to have more policies, more research, um, more media narratives, because I study the media, um, and I, I suppose uh, more, more structures that are informed by the experiences of survivors. And uh, that kind of informing by survivors isn't going to happen if we don't have a culture where survivors are encouraged to even speak up and share their truth. Um, so I think the work that you guys are doing is, is obviously fundamental because, um, you know, because again, it's, you need to take on board the experiences of survivors to create those structures to hold the universities accountable and to hold institutions accountable. Um, so what I would normally do is I would talk about my rape, but I'm not really going to because you can read about it in my book. And, um, and it's 400 pages and I have five minutes. Um, but, uh, but, and the other reason I'm not going to talk about it is because my rape didn't occur in a university setting, right? So I just very briefly, I was in a park uh, in the middle of the day and I was attacked by a complete stranger, a 15-year-old boy who was incredibly violent. And um, so I, I ended up with um, 39 separate injuries according to the police reports and um, I didn't know this person he ran off afterwards um, and eventually um, there was this huge kind of media outcry about it and um, he was arrested about five days later and and then I learned that he was 15 years old he'd come from a broken home and he was illiterate and so for me that was a sense of a person had come from a totally different world because here's me and I had, I had good education I was 29 years old at the time I was working in the film industry um, and there was a very big difference between where we sat in our in society so to speak right um if we're going to use the term capital and we're at the LSE, so let's use the term capital. Um, I had a fair amount of, I didn't have a lot of economic capital then, I still don't, but I had a fair amount of social and cultural capital that came with my education and my career. And as a 15-year-old boy from a kind of marginalized community who was illiterate, he didn't. And I still think that that difference between where we sat in society played a big, played, made a big uh, difference in terms of how the criminal justice system played out. So every instance of harassment and abuse is different, and every instance is underpinned by structures of power and capital between the victim and the perpetrator. So what if, what if the roles were reversed? What if he was the well-educated professional and I was... Uh, you know, a 15-year-old who, who wasn't educated, maybe there would have been a different outcome. What if I was an undergraduate student and my perpetrator was a professor? I think there would have been a different outcome. Um, so my experience was, in that sense, probably a fairly positive one as, as far as it goes, because I reported to the police. I was believed right away. No one's going to believe that a 29-year-old film producer who's out for a hike on her own just randomly decides to consensually have sex with a 15-year-old boy who she's never met before in the mud um, and get 39 separate in as a result. So I actually had a fairly positive experience because I was believed. And then um, the police took me through the whole process. And it was, a, you know, it wasn't a pleasant process at all, but it was fairly smooth. And again, the police never, never discounted me. Um, and I had a great deal of support from my friends and my family. Because again, sometimes it's maybe easier to understand a stranger rape, because that's what we see reported in the media all the time, than to understand the fact that this professor has raped you, or this 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 person who you know who's in your who's in your class has has committed an assault against you. So, as we know, as experts know, um, one only one in ten of rape victims are assaulted by somebody that they by by a stranger. So nine out of ten victims are assaulted by somebody they know. And yet, if we look at the media. Uh, most of the reports that you see in the media in the news stories that come up are ones of stranger rape. So we kind of have this myth of the fact that, you know, people are raped by strangers or not raped by people they know. And when you are one of those victims who is raped by somebody you know, sometimes it takes a long time to actually put the word rape 
in a context that you can associate with your own experience. Um, and I, I think probably a lot of people that work with survivors um, will say that sometimes it takes years for people to, to understand that they actually have been raped and that that is an assault and that's a crime. Um, so um, for me, I got a lot of support from my friends and that and I was lucky enough to have a conviction for my perpetrator and that did help a lot in my recovery. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that recovery is very much tied to being able to disclose about your own experience. Because if I had never made a phone call to my friend who called the police, and I've, if I just continued on that walk and never told anyone about it, I probably would still be suffering um, some pretty serious consequences um, in terms of my mental health, in terms of my PTSD, in terms of um, just the way that my whole life has worked out since. But I was able to disclose quite early on. I was believed. And I think that is kind of the key to, to the beginning of recovery, being able to tell the truth of what happened to you and to be believed and to not have institutions airbrush that or ignore it. Um, and what I study here at the LSE is, um, I suppose, digital communication as a means of, of people sharing their stories. Because sometimes it is really hard to sit in a room opposite somebody, maybe like an officer who's supposed to be dealing with students or, or somebody or even a good friend. It's really hard to sit face to face and tell someone that you've been raped. Because I think a lot of victims have a fear of how that person's going to react. There's a fear of, okay, maybe they're not going to believe me. Maybe they're going to undermine me. Maybe it's just going to be really awkward. So maybe I just won't mention it. When, in fact, um, I think we need to create a culture where victims are going to be believed and they're going to be encouraged to tell their stories. So I'm kind of looking at, is digital media a way for people to disclose? Is it an easier way for victims to disclose? And I've been finding a lot of survivors are finding each other online, um, joining kind of secret Facebook groups, and sharing um, the details of their stories in ways that maybe give them a bit more freedom as opposed to you know calling somebody on the phone or, or sitting across from, from each other in person and sharing that. And so that initial disclosure, if that could happen online, maybe that might be a means of media that we can consider to, to, encourage, um, to encourage a culture of speaking up and a culture of believing. Um, so I guess that's kind of one thought I had um, about how do we use uh, online communications, how do we use digital communication to encourage or to elicit the voices of survivors. Um, but that's just one thing. And obviously, if, if institutions don't have... Um, they don't have a justice system in place that's going to hold perpetrators accountable. If they don't have the right means of support to support um, students, if they're um, who are going through the aftermath of, of an assault, then um, you know institutions are failing us. So I think, um, but if we look at disclosure and ways of encouraging disclosure, maybe through other forms of media, then maybe that's that's one way to start. Thank you very much. Um, uh, my name's Fiona Way, and I work at Universities UK. And um, for those that don't know, Universities UK is the body that represents the voice of universities. And uh, we're about helping to maintain the world-leading um, strength of our UK sector. And we're also about supporting um, our members in delivering what they do. So um, I thought I'd start off with saying a little bit about why we got involved with this area, what we have done, uh, and some of the work that we're, we're now doing, which touches on some of the um, uh, issues that have been raised already by the other panel members. We're very clear, our members, the Vice-Chancellors, are very clear that students are entitled to a safe and positive environment and experience, and universities have a duty to ensure that that outcome is achieved. So um, when uh, the NUS published their evidence, um, of which Alison has already alluded to, 
Um, it was very clear that there were incidences that students were experiencing and that sometimes universities were not always responding in an effective way for those students. And so um, we've put a a paper to our board, that's the decision-making body of Universities UK, to say that we felt it would be useful for Universities UK to do um, some work in this area, which would build on what universities were already doing, but also um, explore what more needs to be done and um, uh, how it should be done. At the same time, uh, or just shortly after, we had a letter from the Minister which asked us to look specifically at um, gender-based violence. So what we did was we set up a task force um, uh, which looked at all forms of harassment but also had a specific um, stream of work around gender-based violence. Uh, We decided to take a holistic approach because we felt that um, we shouldn't just look at one form of harassment. We were were clear that um, although different forms of harassment require different responses, there are some some commonalities across or responding to all forms of harassment, and it would be useful to to look at that. Also, um, our students have multiple identities. We're not just one one thing, so we wanted to kind of look at it in the round. We also, when we put our um, work, when we... um, drew our task force together we were very um, keen to involve students, we had the NUS on our task force, sector experts as well as external bodies and when we brought the task force together they were keen that we looked at both prevention um, and about what uh, developing an effective response would be. We also looked at the we also thought we should look at the legislation and um, look at the experience of what we can learn from other sectors um, internationally. So what have we done? Well we used the the helpful um, research that the um, NUS had done with Alison's support. We also consulted our members, we got evidence about what our members were doing and um, we drew together some recommendations on the basis of the key themes that came out of the evidence that we found and we developed a number of recommendations of what universities could do to enhance what they're doing already and this resulted in a um, publication called Changing the Culture, for those of you who have not seen it and um, within that it has a number of recommendations to institutions which is about um, Um, making sure you get ownership and commitment from your senior leaders, um, uh, adopting an institution-wide approach so that what you do in your institution is consistent across the institution, embedding preventative measures and ensuring that you provide um, support for your students. It was also about looking at what UUK should be doing and UUK is um, helping institutions to kind of showcase what um, is already happening so that institutions can learn from each other about the different approaches they're adopting. Um, we, in July this year we published a case study which has 30 examples of um, what institutions are doing. Um, we were also asked to look at the issues that Tiffany has just raised which is about looking at what more can we do to support institutions in responding to staff on student sexual misconduct. This was an area that came up several times in the task force but was an area that we felt we couldn't do justice and I'm absolutely delighted that I'm working with um, colleagues like Tiffany who are experts in this area and um, Alison to um, provide guidance for the sector on this area. We're also um, working on... um, looking at cyberbullying and um, I'm delighted that um, with their help of Hefke funding we have received funding to work with the University of Bedfordshire to provide guidance to institutions um, to support them in terms of uh, online um, responding to online harassment and bullying. 
We're now, having produced the report, I'm now very much working in the phase of implementation, so I'm supporting the sector to work with um, uh, our institutions, and um, our priorities for the, the, this coming year are about um, um, pr promoting what institutions are doing and taking forward these new pieces of work. We also have a survey going out to all our members in autumn, this autumn, which will look at the progress that institutions have made against the recommendations and I think this will be very helpful in terms of addressing where um, there may be further areas that institutions still require some, some support and um, uh, we will also be um, working with um, uh, um, bodies to look at um, crime, hate crime based on, on religion and belief Thank you Thank you very much Fiona Okay, fantastic So um, now we will um um, I'll pose some questions to the panel and have a few responses and then we'll um, move to questions from the audience. So the first question that I have, um, and again, you know, uh, feel free to respond in, in as much depth as you want at the moment. Um, there's been a lot, of, a lot of coverage of issues relating to sexual harassment and sexual assault in, in recent years. And you've all touched on uh, and made a connection to universities in particular. And I'm just wondering how you think universities can har harness the level of concern to change the culture, both within and beyond um, the institution of the university. Um, yeah. <laughs> Alison, do you want to say something first? <laughs> <laughs> How they can harness the yeah the, the, the kind concern of the media. yeah, yeah. I, and and it seems like they're they're this in particular there's a maybe you found that in 2013 when you were talking about one of your reports there was a a moment an atmosphere there does seem yes. to be an atmosphere right now yes <laughs> and so what do you think what do you think we can do to to capture that and and gain some momentum I think then? well I think the first thing I would say on an institutional level is don't be scared. Yeah. Um, because I think the problem is out there now, it's been well documented that this is going on at every institution. It might take slightly different forms in different places, but it is going on everywhere. And the thing to do is not to hide under the bedclothes and hope it goes away. And I think the universities that are taking action and trying to tackle it will come out on top. Um, so it's almost like the market conditions have shifted um, and it's becoming an advantage to be tackling these issues. But I think we need to press that advantage now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, can I just say, so, I mean, I guess you, you're alluding to, like, enthusiasm, right, <laughs> um, yeah. in the culture to change things. And, I mean, when I, when I think of enthusiasm, I tend to think of students, right? Um, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be thinking of faculties being jaded. But, I mean, you know, I, yeah, there are so many fem like feminist societies in, you know, around the country that are really really enthusiastic and want to change things and yet at the same time I don't think students when we speak about you know higher education as an industry and you know it's, it's being commodified in a certain way I don't think students are aware of that right um, because that, that's yeah that, that, that students are you know going through their lives and um, really excited about learning things and really fired about certain issues and I don't think they think about okay my parents are paying this tuition fee and therefore I'm just a customer right um, so I think there's kind of a difference between um, the enthusiasm and passion that students have and the way that the institutions function, right? 
Um, and I guess, and also if you think about it, like if you're a student, you know, you can get really fired up about something, but you're only there for three years, or if you're a master's student, you're only there for a year, and then you're gone. So all the enthusiasm you could have brought to changing the institution, if that's not harnessed within the year or the three years that you're there, then that goes away, right? Um, and, and institutions tend to be quite slow. Um, so I, I kind of think that if there's a way to create, um, I don't know, like task groups or, or ways of having students actively inform the way that an institution treats the issue of sexual assault and consent. So, so students that have had, have gone through the reporting process and have maybe not been treated that well by the university, if there's feedback structures, if there's a sense of their experiences actually being taken on board and treated as a way of improving um, the structures, then that would be good. But if, you don't, if you're not creating those kinds of forums for students to bring their voices um, and their lived experience, then, then you're missing out on a whole, uh, a whole range of knowledge that could be improving the, the institution. I think I mean one of the one of the things of course is is in thinking about data as well is that so when for example the Guardian reports came out and every institution um, how many reports of staff to sexual misconduct you had and, and, and so one university I won't name them because then that will become the university but universities like well we only had one or we didn't have any that's bad yeah. <laughs> so data's tricky because in 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 this kind of, it's not, not that Hollywood, for example, I feel like we have to mention Weinstein at some point. Um, I've, I've met him in the past. Yeah. Oh. yeah, I didn't get a massage, but sorry. <laughs> um, um, it's not that Hollywood is worse than other industries. So, so the thing, I think, with the enthusiasm is that, and some of the fear, and, and connected to Alison's response, is that one of the difficulties, I think, with institutions is that when you start to report and you change your culture is that you will have people coming forward. You will have more complaints. And this means that certain institutions will look, and certain departments will look bad. So this department has 22 complaints of sexual harassment, whether student to student or staff to student. This one has three. How do we understand that? Does that mean that the environment is such that, first of all, people feel more supported to make complaints as opposed to this other department where people keep quiet? And so I think that we, the institutions need to be, and also with the media plays a role in this, is that high numbers do not mean that it's any worse than somewhere else. So how we interpret this is crucial at this point, because I think otherwise institutions become scared, and that also comes down to reputations. But if you go to an institution and you look it up in the league table and it says it's got no complaints, that's bad. <laughs> Something's going on. I, I just echo um, uh, Tiffany's points. It's that communications are really important here. Um, we One of the roles that Universities UK can play is, is to um, raise awareness with our members that numbers are like to go up and um, making clear that um, this is what you would expect if you were doing this in, in a way that is encouraging and, and, and providing a safe environment for students to be able to, to disclose. Um, and one of the recommendations that we make in our task force in the report is about that you should re refer um, to what's happening in your institution to your governing body. Your governing body is responsible for um, uh, promoting equality, diversity and inclusion. And it's, um, uh, again, by actually raising the profile of these um, uh, incidences with your governing body and then saying, this is how we're doing, this is what we're doing to address this. This is a way to overcome some of the um, issues and, and avoid going down the route that Tiffany mentioned about being um, uh, not wanting to, 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 to 
be upfront about it or trying to airbrush something. And there are a number of vice chancellors now that have actually come out publicly and said, um, this is something that we um, we will not stand for, and um, this we will be continue to, to um, promote um, our policies in this area. So. Okay, great. Um, so the, the next question that, that I had posed is in relation, I mean, you, you slightly mentioned that already, Tiffany, in relation to the case, but in relation to recent high-profile cases, I think some areas of the press, and this issue doesn't just come up in the context of universities, it comes up in the context of, of, of many organizational structures or organizations. Is, so some of the press have challenged women for not stepping forward sooner. And I wonder how we can create an environment in which those reporting can have confidence in both systems and the seriousness with which those reports will be treated. I mean, I think actually the comments you've just made in relation to, you know, um, um, the expectation, the institutional expectations around how numbers will look in terms of reputation is one. But, yeah, what, what, what do you think about um, the issues of confidence in the systems and... Um, and the seriousness with which those reports um, will be treated. Um, if I can just follow on with the um, Hollywood theme, I was up at Stupid O'Clock this morning and um, I caught a very recent edition of Hard Talk and Jane Fonda was talking. And um, in the interview, she was asked, you know, why do you think that women didn't come forward? This is another example of women having to take responsibility um, you know, when we talk about, when we look at data and we, we talk about, you know, how many women were raped in North London last year, um, how many, um, you know, how many women were the victim of, of sexual assault, maybe we should look at the other question, which is actually putting the responsibility on the offending. It's actually saying how many men raped women last year, um, it, it it just seems um, that we're putting a lot of responsibility still on women to be coming forward, to be uh, policing the actions of the perpetrators by asking why they haven't reported. I like Jane Fonda's response, actually, which was, um, I think it's really simple and really key to all of this, and it's something which Winnie referred to, is because they thought they wouldn't be believed. Um, uh, this is why I think it's so important that institutions um, promote the safe environment for their, their students and there's many ways in which institutions are doing that. You can see that in our directory of case studies, for example, by adopting a zero tolerance culture that sets out behavioural expectations and um, what says um, and the sanctions that if those um, expectations are breached. And it's really important that um, you don't just set out what behaviour um, should look like for a student, what's acceptable, what's not. But it's also about having those, um, having it backed up by disciplinary disciplinary procedures, and also that the institution actually delivers on that uh, and. Um, that's you're only going to get um, confidence as students to be confident in an institution's processes and procedures if they can see the institutions acting upon it. There's also a number of um, uh, bystander initiatives that uh, many institutions are adopting now to encourage um, students to call out abusive or un unacceptable behaviour. So um, uh, there are a number of um, uh, activities that universities are trying to, to introduce to encourage an environment that will enable students to feel they can um, disclose. 
Um, but I, I would just ask, I mean, I would say number one, just a university needs to have a really clear policy, which is publicly available on a website and in leaflets about what to do if you're a victim of sexual assault within the university. Um, so I tried looking that up in LSE, and I don't know, is I couldn't find a clear policy on sexual assault here and what to do if you've been assaulted. Um, so that that's even in LSE, I'm like, well, that, surely that must exist somewhere, but I couldn't find it online. Does anybody know? Is, is there a clear policy anywhere on the LSE website? Okay, we don't know. Um, and then, oh, is there... Is something about that, Troy? I can, um, so we're developing a policy specifically around sexual violence and sexual harassment. We've improved massively in the last few weeks the information that we have available online. So there's now a flowchart for people who want to disclose in details of where to go within the institution. We're partnering with Solace Women's Aid to develop a network of safe contacts. And they'll be in place by the beginning of November. So I think we are moving forward. We're not quite where we want to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, but that's great. I mean, I think just and like I can't again emphasize, and obviously this is why I study um, how how drastically the internet has changed access to information for survivors and a sense of actually being able to connect with people that can support you and understand you. So um, yeah, having information you just find online is way easier than picking up a phone call and explaining to someone within certain office hours when that person's available. I've been raped and explaining it over the phone to a complete stranger, which is, you know, after my assault, I, I, just, I just stopped calling. I mean, you, know, you, have to, you have to call Rape Crisis Center and to call victim support and, like, and explain over and over again what happened to you, and it's incredibly, incredibly exhausting um, to have to talk about your rape all the time, right? Although I do that now professionally. Um, but, uh, um, but, um, but, yeah, but when you're traumatized, it's incredibly exhausting. Um, so if it, if it was just available, if that information was available online, and that's Great, and that's great. Why? I mean, rape crisis centers have so much information available online, um, which is incredibly helpful. Um, and then the other thing is about disclosure. I'm wondering: is it possible to have a website where you, know, you can not not just that there's a, a flow chart where where it follows where you can follow what to do, where you can almost just input the details of your assault and report it via an online space. Um, so even like, and make it as easy as possible for a victim to report. So even if there's like a drop down menu like what day did your assault happen, you know, and just make things as easy as possible to report, that again removes the onus um, that is on the victim when, when you're in an incredibly traumatized state, you just want it to it, you want it to be as easy as possible to disclose and to get that information across, I suppose. In, in terms of the question about confidence in the system, and I do, I think, and I am speaking from the point of view of, of staff sexual misconduct, that universities have to act. Universities have to fire people. It's pretty simple. That, and this doesn't happen. Yeah. And so that sends very clear messages about behaviour. And at the moment, in terms of having confidence, and one of the one of the issues is. Uh, and after this reporting, is that what does it take for a student to have to report a staff member who's in a power relationship? So it could be a lecturer, it could be someone you met at a conference. So it's not only being believed, but then what happens to that staff member? And at the moment, the lack of confidence in the system is that you've got your student services and you've got your HR procedure. So with, with universities, and I think these structures are important, is that you, you make a complaint, and I know with LSE, because I filled out your form, um, but there was no button that said, do you want to submit? So I submitted um, an anonymous made-up um, uh, w- without any details. 
um, <laughs> because I wanted to test the system. But you can, you can submit a complaint, and once that compl if that complaint is upheld for a staff member, that then becomes an HR matter, and that's disciplinary. And that's where you are no longer the person with a complaint. You become a witness. Now, I've had to testify at a disciplinary tribunal for my PhD supervisor, and it's, and it's awful, because you're on trial. My supervisor was able to ask me questions why didn't I do this? But you said this. And then for any, and students need to know that this is what they have to go through. And so the difficulty with trust in the system as well is that because it becomes an HR issue and it becomes a matter of employment, employment law, is confidentiality. So students are not informed of the outcome, whether the, whether the staff member leaves, resigns, remains on campus. And once again, in terms of a sense of justice... That is not there. So there's a huge amount of work that institutions have to do in terms of the confidence in the system that they have to act, but also this transparency regard, regarding yeah. that if you do bring a complaint or a report against a staff member, how do you know what has happened and will the university actually act and take it seriously? Um, I wonder if it might be useful for me to talk about my other project for a few minutes, which is um, Universities Supporting Victims of Sexual Violence, which is a pan-European project. Um, across six European countries, we have um, 13 partners and a further seven associate partner institutions, I think, at last count, we keep adding and taking away, who are all developing um, training programmes for first response to disclosures of sexual violence for staff um, so they're country-specific and they're often institution-specific as well because institutions can be different. Um, and we are hoping to use that project as a vehicle to start to develop more open cultures. But, of course, as Tiffany and others have said, if you've got the more open culture, you need to be prepared that you will have reports of harassment and violence. So you also need to have the systems to be geared up to deal with it. So with using the project as well as a lobbying tool to say you need to have um, a reporting procedure that is fit for purpose. You need to have a care pathway, the, the flowchart for students, um, so they know where they're going to go. And so most importantly, wherever they report, they kind of get on the same system and end up with the same level of support. Um, and I think that that is one of the ways in which we can create more openness and maybe more momentum around how to deal with us, with some of these more difficult cases. But also it's, it's about lots of different things, isn't it? Sometimes it's about behaviours that don't necessarily constitute a criminal offence. Sometimes it's about behaviours that you don't necessarily want to see somebody fired for, but you want them to stop. Mm -hmm. You want them to just behave a bit better. Um, and I think when we start to talk about intersectionality in relation to these issues, the discussion becomes a lot more complex and it's difficult to accept that sexual violence is contextual and intersectional. I think what you said about your perpetrator was very, very brave and the way that you seem to have dealt with it is amazingly brave and I had a similar experience um, in being victimised by somebody who had less privileges than I do. And I think once we start to examine some of those dynamics, it becomes very challenging because it hurts. And sometimes the message that gets heard is your trauma doesn't matter because you have privilege. And that's not the case. But we do need to look at how our systems can be fit to purpose to deal with 
all kinds of different situations and behaviours which might be problematic, but there might be a reason why they're occurring. Um, and the last thing I want to say just in relation to that is the word pedagogy, um, because we do have a duty of care to students, um, and particularly when we're talking about student-on-student -student violence, um, we have a duty of care, I think, to help our students to see where their behaviours might be causing problems and help them to change their behaviours if, if they possibly can. Okay, thank you very much. You've sort of preempted my final <laughs> question. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was really just about, I mean, a very broad use of the concept of inter intersectionality, but actually thinking about, um, in the context of the university, but also beyond, about the, you know, the many different backgrounds that um, individuals, um, especially in the university uh, sector, um, are coming from, um, you know, including um, LGBTQI, trans um, uh, students who are who are racialized in particular ways within those institutions, uh, students who are undergraduates versus masters and PhD students, staff staff relations, all kinds of issues and I was just thinking that in an international institution like LSE you know there may be very um, familiar ways of reporting that people might know so they might go to that you know they might look google it on on LSE but others might not because they might not be familiar with that and they might um, um, disclose in a very different way so um, I was just wondering if anybody wanted to comment on the very broad uh, way in which intersectionality might be um, might be used to, I guess, catalyze a discussion about the importance of paying attention to differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Start. I mean, I think it. I think it's incredibly important that because because the data in terms of of often so staff sexual misconduct or sexual misconduct and it's and women are, and there's and women are not broken down as well and and for us it's very important that it affects people of all gender identities all sexualities as well so in terms of of data and stats and one of the things that often isn't drawn upon is what is the breakdown who is and in these Data in the US, and I happen to have it handy, um, is you know it was 150,000 um, students, and this was the Association of American Universities, but they didn't break it down according to race. So race was invisibilized. All the students, let's assume they were white. There is no data on race. They did break it down according to female and male, and this was their categories, and they used these terms, transgender male, transgender female, gender queer, gender nonconforming, or questioning. And... 33% of graduate students who identified in this particular way had um, said that the perpetrator of the sexual harassment, sexual violence, was a faculty member. And that was far higher than students who identified as female. And those, so those figures in terms of, in particular, trans students and non-binary students in high numbers experiencing forms of staff sexual misconduct, which is often erased when we only use the terms woman. Um, and the... In Ohio University, um, they've conducted a study um, and found that 8.2% reported um, unwanted sexual ex um, advances from faculty, but 9% were students of colour and 6.4% were white students, and that's incredibly important that this is impacting students of colour in larger, more predominant ways. And so, you know, with the research that we're conducting within US, we want to have an understanding of 
how this is a deeply intersectional and deeply involved in, in, in student differences, and it's important that we understand those. Um, I just wanted to, uh, well, kind of to repeat what I said before, which is, um, you know, essentially that your social position, um, either as a victim or as a perpetrator, um, plays a big role in terms of, I suppose, the nature of the assault, um, whether or not you're going to disclose how you're believed, and your ability to recover. Because, for example, if you're from a wealthier family, um, you have more resources, and maybe your family can pay for um, for therapy, um, and you don't have to wait for the NHS to maybe approve you as being eligible <laughs> for therapy, right? Um, so I think, um, you know, in, in all the work that I've done with survivors, like there, there's all these different intersectional elements play a huge role in, in how you perceive your own trauma, how you believe your, your own experience, um, and, and if you're believed by other people, and how you then go on to recover. Um, and that's incredibly unfair that those kinds of inequalities continue to play a bigger role in, in the aftermath of trauma like that. Um, so, I mean, I guess... For me, I would say the role of the institution is to try to level those inequalities or to create, you know, nothing's ever going to be a completely level playing field, but try to make that a little bit more um, even, I suppose. So, for example, you know, therapy could hopefully be provided for, for students who are, who are um, victims of assault um, and they don't have to rely on, you know, parental wealth to, to pay for therapy. Um, you know, so I guess that would be what I would say about that. I had another point but I have since forgotten it. Um, so I just I do think it's you know institutions are important to try. To, it's important that they take into on board these different inequalities and try to level them. I suppose um, when I think of the other one, I'll, I'll bring it up. What was the other one? Um, I'm thinking about opening it up. Can I just come back yeah. on sectionality for yeah. just a couple of minutes? Is that all right? Because I've just been writing and writing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think with intersectionality, you have a couple of things really. You have the ideal victim who is white, middle-class, well-spoken, well-educated, not a sex worker, um, and that's really important in terms of how we deal with these issues in universities where more and more students are selling sex um, in order to be able to pay their fees. Um, And then you have what Angela Davis called the police blotter rapist, um, which is basically, well, in her work, it was a black man, in this country, it could be a, a working class man as well, and of course those categories intersect. Um, and we know that the criminal justice system is institutionally racist. Um, I think we can also say that our universities are institutionally racist. So what does that mean in terms of how we deal with sexual violence? Who is more likely to be defined as an ideal victim and given the support they need, as Winnie said, but also who is more likely to, to be defined as a perpetrator or an aggressor. Um, and I think that's really important to ask ourselves, especially when we're looking at things like bystander intervention. Who gets to be an active bystander? Who gets to be the, the, literally the white knight? Um, and who is more likely to be defined as an aggressor, even if they are, in fact, intervening in a situation? Um, so I think that those kinds of things are really important questions to ask, as well as who gets to report, who gets to avail themselves of protection, um, and that's true of the broader criminal justice system as well as our institutional systems, and also what types of things might stop um, particular types of people from reporting. They might be racial loyalties, they might be loyalties to LGBTQ communities, um, there might be issues around um, prevent as an agenda and how that um, doesn't facilitate openness about lots of different things. So I think that we do need to take intersectionality very seriously. And um, in saying that, I realise that I'm saying things that some people might not like 
to hear um, because as a survivor you never you you want to you want to see it as clear cut don't you um, and I understand that it's incredibly painful to look at some of these complexities but I think we have to because otherwise in dealing with gender as a one dimensional inequality related to sexual violence we risk exacerbating other types of inequalities in our in our institutions I think. Um, I think I should open it up to questions if nobody else. Great. Thank you. Please. Yes, here and here. I'll take a couple. Um, and if you could keep them, because we've got a few, so if you could keep them as much as you can as questions. <laughs> okay. Um, hi. Thank you very much. That was a really, really interesting talk. Um, you talked a lot about um, students' roles, and you also talked about, for example, I think the, the, the term capitalism was mentioned. And um, my question is, um, students were framed largely as, for example, victims of um, uh, sexual abuse and harassment at universities and as people at, who, on the other hand, were the ones who sparked all of these activities. But as far as I know, U.S. universities do not give students proper formal political power, decision-making power in university-governing bodies as formal representative of the largest stakeholder group at universities, which is all of the students. So my question would be, in order to tackle this problem and in order to give students a better voice, but also formal political representation, do we need to change the, the way that university governance is treating students, which is more as a political stakeholder and less as, for example, a paying customer? Um, my background is um, working with sexual offenders. I was a psychologist for about 35 years, so I'm coming at it from that point of view of working with sexual offenders, plus also working with those who have experienced sexual offences against them, so I can see it from both sides. One of the, the things or the thoughts that I've had, and I'd be interested in the comments from the panel, is that an essential element of sexual offenders, and all these people that you're talking about are sexual offenders, is an essential vulnerability. So you're talking about the, the person with lower education and, and disadvantages and so on, and they're obviously um, vulnerable and have, have um, all sorts of disadvantages. But in fact, I think that's a bit of a distractor that when you look at any sexual offender, it doesn't matter what level of society they come from, there is an essential vulnerability, and that until the offender actually acknowledges that vulnerability, then there's very little chance of change. Now, it seems to me that there's a parallel process going on between the denial of the vulnerability of the offender and the denial of, of the existence of sexual offending within the university system. Mm -hmm. That as yeah. the offender refuses to acknowledge their own vulnerability and their own unacceptable behaviour. On the other hand, you have the universities who are doing exactly the same thing and using that horrifying thing called the non-disclosure agreement. And I wonder if... if and, and until the law changes whereby it's no longer possible for universities to hide behind the non-disclosure agreement, then just as the sexual offender is never going to change their behaviour if they don't have to acknowledge it out loud, 
the universities are never going to change their behaviour unless they have to acknowledge it out loud and can't hide behind these legal processes. Yeah, well, I wondered what some of the um, processes um, would be to tackle institutional cultures and values and what kind of things work in terms of reflective spaces or... Um I'm sorry, I, uh, my hearing's not that great, so could you just speak up just a tiny bit? Sure. Yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So I wondered um, what some of the processes are that you use to tackle institutional cultures and values and what works and what situations they work and don't work, etc. I can start with the last one, if you yes. like, because that is quite a practical... Um, I mean, in terms of my projects, I guess we've used the disclosure training. Um, time will tell, though, whether that does create a more open culture. I mean, we've trained um, 180 staff across Brighton and Sussex universities, so I'm hopeful that we have made a bit of a dent. Um, the other project, the Changing University Cultures, we are using Action Inquiry... Um, which we are basing in themes drawn from our data, but we're not kind of literally rehearsing the data over and over again. We're trying to get at themes which, um, which tackle some of the underlying issues, so vulnerability, for example, um, or trust. Um, I'm currently co-facilitating an action inquiry set on trust at Sussex University, which is amazing. I mean, I, I don't know what the impact will be. It's too soon to tell, but the space in the room is electric, and we've had more tears, more laughter than, you know, any other um, of the sets that we've done so far. So... Um, that's what we're using at the moment. We're trying to start an institution-wide conversation, but about some of the fundamentals. So rather than going over sexual violence is bad, this is why it's bad, we're asking how can we trust each other? What does it mean to be trusted? Who, who is worthy of trust and who isn't? And what happens when a trust is broken, um, both emotionally and institutionally, I suppose? Uh, I can say um, uh, something about the first question, which was about students and um, how they, um, uh, the, the difference between kind of the way that they are seen by an institution. I mean, the bottom line is that there is that contractual relationship, but um, my understanding from the work that we did with our task force and from the evidence that we gained is that it's a much, much, goes much beyond that. And in fact, anything that we, everything that we have suggested that should be done is very much with students, talking to students, working collaboratively 
collaboratively with students and the evidence was absolutely crystal clear if the institution worked with the student union worked with students the amount of activity that came out of that and the impact was far greater than if it was just uh, an, an initiative by the student union or by the um, uh, institution and there are examples for example um, I, um, the University of East Anglia the um, governing board there they receive reports from what's happening in their institution and um, they, the governors there they asked the student union to go and talk to them directly to say what what is happening and what what the university is doing you know to, to, to mitigate against these the, the, the incidences so um, you know they're taking an active interest and they're actually going straight to the student to the student voice and, and that that's really important um, I can speak briefly to what the gentleman said here. I, I mean, I think it's it's absolutely, absolutely essential that we look at, at perpetrators or potential perpetrators because we're never going to solve the problem or prevent this from happening if we're not actually looking at the perpetrators. So all, all these kinds of measures we're talking about, like the ways institutions can improve themselves to, to encourage reporting and to, you know, to, to work with students to, to, you know, I guess have more accountability for perpetrators, well, that's all after the fact, right? I and mean, that's all after somebody's already been raped or assaulted and that person's life has been has been affected. Um, so yeah, in the ideal world, we'd be working with perpetrators so these assaults don't happen in the first place. Um, yeah, and I, I don't think we have enough time to really go into that whole issue. I mean, I you know, I, well, the reason I wrote the book, half of it being from the perpetrator's point of view, is because I I always had this question of why you know what happened in this 15 year old boy's life that led him to be that violent and rape me um, on that day. And then the other question I've always had is is there anything in all the years since that assault, has he ever thought about the impact of his actions on my life? And somehow tying the the perpetrator's experience and their, I guess, reckoning of their violence to a sense of account. I mean, to a sense of accountability is it's quite important for me as as a um, as a survivor. So, um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think, and I know obviously universities are having programs where, like, Freshers Week, like, what is safe sex, or you know, what is what is consensual sex. I mean, that's all great, but actually. Those, need, those kinds of conversations need to be happening earlier in boys' lives, and, and I suppose, you know, in, in, in everyone's lives, right? We need to be talking about um, healthy relationships, like, much earlier than the university level. Okay. I think we'll take another round of questions. I'm sure some of those will come up. Okay. Hello. Um, so, it's obviously... I I sort of see the panel, and it's, it's for me, it's quite a one-sided. Shout a little bit. Sorry. sorry, it's quite a one-sided panel um, at this time. Obviously, we've just touched on uh, working with the perpetrator, uh, um, but actually, also something from the uh, criminal justice system would have been in an opinion from a criminal justice system would have been quite interesting. Um, I'd like to ask why, um, from the system of, that we're currently working under, in that the victim is believed at the time um, by police by the criminal justice system. How do you expect um, that to function? in uh, a world that we currently live in, which is actually a fair justice system that we should be having, why should we be believing the victim over having an all-round fair justice system at the time? Okay. Um, I have somebody here in a blue denim shirt, and then... Hi. Um, so my question is, uh, to give a bit of precursor, I'm, I'm from Goldsmiths, and um, we've been doing loads of work um, around interrogating uh, lots of our processes, especially around... Um, what we can learn from our past. Um, people probably only have to look in the press to see some of the, the stories around what's happened at Goldsmiths. Um, and I think it's really important for all universities to be 
sort of um, realising the mistakes they've made and being honest about those mistakes because um, otherwise we're never going to learn from them. And one of those honest things is that we sometimes in the past have not seen investigations through to end if someone's left their job. Um, and I have a question for the panel uh, centred around the idea around how do we collectively as universities um, try and stop job hopping when someone is mid-investigation and what can we do? And I think I'm mostly targeting that question at University of UK because we as individual institutions have a lot of limited um, ability to sort of affect that person's job in the future. Um, and if it was any other profession, like a doctor or a teacher, they have a national body that they'd be registered with and they'd be able to have that registration removed um, and if they're found to be guilty. Um, uh, whereas... In higher education, we don't really have that. People have the privilege of leaving before and uh, looking after their reputation. So. Hi. Um, thank you so much for that. So many really interesting insights. Um, I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit about kind of what the implications are for these women that are leaving university, um, having not been listened to or not been taken seriously, and what that actually means for them when they go on for the rest of their lives, what that means for them within organisations. Um, yeah. Okay, I'll take two more if I can, please. Hi there. Um, I'd really like to, to hear more about why it's so difficult for universities to get rid of staff when they've been found to have been offending and when that's been proved because it feels like it's something that should be quite clear-cut so yeah I'd be interested to hear if it's a question of will or if it's to do with HR policies employment policies hi thank you guys so much my question is about whether there is a given institution or a private organization that you think is a good example of handling sexual assault complaints, whether there's anyone who comes to mind that you think is doing a really responsible job of it that should be used as kind of a template for other institutions. Thank you. If we have enough time, I'll, I'll, I'll do some more, you two, and, and it, just give them a chance to respond. Otherwise, there's too many questions, okay? <laughs> Great. Um, if I can take the question about um, the criminal justice system. Um, I, in a former life, I was um, a barrister um, practicing in criminal and family courts. Um, so I guess I've kind of seen it um, working with survivors um, of, um, of criminal um, offending as well as um, prosecuting and um, defending those offences. And I think one of the things um, really to think about is that in terms of when a prosecution is bought, the very high burden uh, that there is um, by the prosecution, they have to prove their case to the criminal standard, which is beyond reasonable doubt. Um, there was some really interesting... We never know what goes on with juries. Um, it's not actually legally possible to um, do any research um, or to know the reasons why a jury has decided... Um, one way or another and myself and and lawyers and and judges um, have all had really frustrating days when we've seen um, cases where it's absolutely beggars belief why the jury found um, found the 
didn't find somebody guilty or did find somebody guilty um it's 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 that complete loss of control i think just speaking briefly from a survivor's point of view um reporting is a huge and going down the criminal justice route is a huge leap into the unknown um, for um, a survivor it's it's really difficult I think those of us who work with survivors um, when survivors are looking to us and saying but my um, perpetrator will be found guilty won't they it's really really difficult for us to ever give any kind of certainty um, about that um, so I think really the, the way in which to think about it is that the prosecution is bringing the case, they have to prove it to the um, criminal standard of proof. Um, the, in terms of the defendant, um, they don't even have to um, provide any defence if they don't want to. Um, obviously, a defendant will usually bring some um, defence which they will um, try to argue um, on, on their behalf. Um, but yeah, a defendant isn't doesn't have to um, provide any response whatsoever if they don't want to. They don't have to um, give evidence um, in court. So the burden is on the um, prosecution um, in terms of um, um, getting that that conviction and, and bringing it to court. So I think in terms of the. Um, uh, the burden, I think, it's firmly with um, that that victim, and and the prosecution. I think it was. Uh, I don't know how many of you heard the interview with John Snow last week on uh, Radio Four. We was talking about the reduction that there been in prosecutions for domestic abuse cases, and the very first question which he he um, um, started on was, um, yeah, but you know, p- what about um, people who bring false um, allegations and and that, and and it's not too long before any discussion about um, rape and sexual assaults goes down that that line by people, you know, talking about what about people who bring uh, malicious complaints, um, and it's it's really quite frustrating. Um, when you know the we know that the absolute there's a real minority um, an absolute minority of people who um, make malicious complaints Um, the question of why is it difficult to get rid of staff and I think this relates to cultures of sexual violence like it's very difficult to prosecute someone in a court so it's of of forms of sexual violence gender-based violence so it's equally very difficult this question and it relates to to Alison's comment as well is that the nuances of of in in particular staff to student misconduct of course this notion of proof how do you have evidence of a lecturer um, or a staff member or whoever it is um, propositioning you? Well, no, I didn't. It's very difficult. Or being, and, you know, and then we're talking about atmospheres of discomfort. We're talking about things that it's difficult to provide evidence for. Perhaps there's a string of emails where you've been receptive to that particular person because they're in a position of power, because they said to you, I can help you get a scholarship. Because, I mean, there's lots of different reasons where actually it's very easy to argue that it was consensual in, or that this was not a form of harassment. <coughs> as well. So, I mean, academic staff can, can launch lawsuits against their institution 
um, they can appeal it, and, and there's lots that they can sue for libel. <laughs> Academics can become <laughs> become very litigious um, in, in this space as well. I mean, these are just different examples of why it can become difficult. Aside from... Um, Universities, in terms of of you know firing someone for sexual harassment or sexual violence, also sends a message about what kind of culture has been happening as well. So it's it's a difficult. There's not one answer as to why why that is the case. It's something I struggle with as well. Like, and I, we talk to lawyers sometimes, and they say, well, it's it's a matter of employment law, but it seems to be more complicated than that. But it's also in the context of it's very difficult to bring prosecutions to use that language of sexual violence outside of academia. So why would it be easier within it? So this is this is how this you know we need to think about how this is done. We need to look to other. We've got some research that we're starting looking um, outside at, at workplace practices. I mean the university is a workplace, but it doesn't seem to be often seen like that. So w- looking at other industries in terms of the ways in which sexual harassment is 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 practices are dealt with in effective and ineffective ways. And, and uh, just building on um, uh, on what Tiffany's just said, that's Universities UK in looking at um, developing guidance for staff on student uh, misconduct. We are looking at how we can increase the transparency of university processes, and that's particularly looking at um, non-disclosure agreements and the challenges that, that, that this raises for institutions because of the, um, the the legal frameworks within which they work. But we are looking at this, so, yeah. Just really quickly, if I could speak to the question here. Um, yeah, I think it's in- incredibly damaging. If you're a student and you um, report a rape and, and your university basically doesn't, isn't there to support you, doesn't believe you, you have to drop out, like that, that's a huge, that your entire life trajectory has been shifted, right? Because if you can't complete your studies because you're traumatized or depressed or all the other um, results or all the other um, uh, mental health impacts of, of trauma, then that means you can't, you know, you've, you're out of step with everybody else in your, in your class, right? I mean, I lost pretty much three four years of my life just were this huge void because I I was trying to recover from that assault. And basically, if you've reported something and you've done everything you're supposed to do as a victim um, and you're still not being believed and your institutions failed you, that's incredibly damaging, not just for your life trajectory, but also possibly for your sense of self-esteem. If you're very young, um, how are you going to trust systems in the future? How are you going to trust workplaces in the future? Are you going to even have the confidence to go back to university? I mean, I think we don't really look long enough at, like, the massive impact that violence like that has on an individual's life and the kind of guilt, actually, that institutions have for failing victims. Um, I can do this one. (laughs) Um, In terms of, I mean, I don't think I have a perfect example, but um, I would recommend that if you're interested in this, you go and read about what happened when the pornography actress Stoyer alleged that her longtime collaborator and partner, James Dean, had raped her Mm. um, quite violently. And that industry um, immediately rallied around her and started from a place of belief. So I don't think we should automatically believe victims. Allegations have to be investigated. Um, we, you know, we don't just say, we believe you, move on. But you start from a place of belief. Because when somebody says, I was mugged, you don't say, were you really? Were you holding your handbag out? You know, were you, wearing, were you flashing your money around? We don't say that, do we? So I think we treat sexual violence the same as we would any other crime. We start from a place of belief, but then we investigate. And then we come to a decision based on either beyond reasonable doubt in the, in the courts or a preponderance of evidence in other situations on what we think has happened. And I think that what happened in that particular industry 
and I don't know why. Maybe it's because it became a reputational issue given that so many people think that pornography in itself is rape. It becomes a big risk to have that kind of allegation in that industry or whether it's because in that particular industry there is an active dialogue about sexual consent because of the type of work that's done. But there was an immediate response um, in, in support of Stoyer when she made her allegations. I don't know what's happened with it now, so I can't kind of say this is a perfect example of best practice. I imagine it's probably not, but I can say that that was an example of a, a reaction that I, as a survivor, thought, this is fantastic, you know, if only I'd had that when it happened to me. Perhaps I can... Um, the question from Vicky... Um, and that's something that, that we've discussed and, and thinking about. So this question of, of stopping job hopping, <laughs> and it is a vexing question. And I mean, because I think it raises this question, as you said, of regulation. And academics and regulation <laughs> don't mix well together. Um, so in terms of or, or thinking about, you know, the culture of academia in terms of the notion of regulation. So I talked briefly at the beginning about a professional code of conduct. Medical profession has a professional code of conduct. Industries where they have relationships of power often have professional codes of conduct. And, and I, in your idea, I mean, it's something that we've, we've talked about a lot with regards to the registering of a particular body. Now, more and more, for example, um, and it's, but it's not essential, is that you, you, know, you become a fellow of the Higher Education Authority. Um, it could be through the Equality Challenge Unit, or I think there are particular bodies where a form of registration could be looked at. And I, and I think these conversations had, have to be had because they're, in terms of culture change and regulation and, and professional codes of conduct, there has to be a way of enforcing this. And so I think it's, it's a very important question because it does happen. There's a study in the US looked at 300 cases of, um, that went to court. 53% were serial offenders and faculty staff members. It, it's often, you know, it, the behaviour is often not a one-off. That may be the case, but this, for a lot of staff to student, it's not the first time. If it happens to you, it's usually not the first time. It's, it's, you're not the first student. And these people move... You know, sometimes, and I did do a bit of a test, if you put the person's name in and then you Google sexual harassment after it, sometimes you... <laughs> and obviously HR people aren't doing that. Um, uh, or there's rumours. So we all know of those people, but they are still hired. I mean, that's another issue about hiring practices as well and who gets hired and who doesn't. I'm so sorry to those people who still have questions, but we have run out of time. And I was supposed to stop five minutes ago, but I <laughs> notoriously do this. So if you come to another event that I chair, please be prepared. <laughs> but please uh, join me in thanking Fiona, Allison, Tiffany, Jennifer, and Winnie. very difficult to say on such a topic uh, that I found that a most fascinating and wonderful experience, but I did. Uh, and I think it tells you a little bit about how important these discussions are and how much we need to continue them. So I hope that we will have a, a, another event in, in the future um, that addresses many of these issues and continues the discussion. Okay, thank you.